Last week we looked at the prologue of the book of Revelation. And it's my hope that we are now reading the book. Uh, for the Lord has promised a blessing for reading, as we saw, in keeping the book. And we saw that the book is a revelation that it intends to be understandable. It's an unveiling. And it's relevant to real churches on the ground because it's a letter. Just like the other letters in the New Testament. And this becomes clear this morning as we move into the greeting in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. We're going to make six points here. I won't list them all out. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. We're going to make those six points there. The first one has to do with the churches. The churches in verse 4. So the text begins, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. This is uh, Asia Minor, which was a Roman province. And so it's, it's basically the western part of modern Turkey, over near the Aegean Sea. And these are seven actual churches. Uh, and these churches are named later in seven cities. And they're personally addressed. They each get a little exhortation in chapters 2 and 3. And so, we mentioned this last week, but it's very important at this point, and at every point in the text, to ask this question. What would this mean to these Christians in Asia Minor in the late first century? It's amazing how many interpreters of the book of Revelation never ask that question. Because they forget that the book's a letter to real people like us. What would this mean to Christians in Asia Minor in the late first century? That helps ground our interpretation. So the book then is actually a circular letter. One letter would go to all seven churches. Seven, of course, in all of Scripture and in the book of Revelation, is a symbolic number. And so these seven churches, they stand in as representatives of the fullness of the whole church. It is significant that there are seven of them. After chapter 3 in the book, the seven churches are not mentioned. And the scope of the book widens out into this cosmic international battle which involves the whole church. And so what pertains to the seven pertains to the whole church. What pertains to the whole church pertains to the seven. Also, we'll see this when we get to chapters 2 and 3, but at the end of every letter, every mini letter to each particular church, there's an exhortation. You probably remember it. There's an exhortation at the end of every letter. And it goes like this. Let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. Even the letters to the individual churches are for all the churches. And so, this means that God gave this book, and this is his culminating piece of work 
This is the last thing that God will say to the church until he comes again in glory. This is his last word. He gave this last word to Westminster Church, to you and to me. Not to scholars, not to experts, just to normal people in the church. He writes to these churches in Asia Minor who in their concerns are in many ways just like everybody else, just like us. And so that's the churches. The, God addresses the church in its actual condition. And the second point is the Father. Grace and peace flow from the Holy Trinity, first from the Father, and here the Father is called to Him who is and who was and who is to come. This this great title reflects Exodus chapter 3, where God reveals Himself to Moses as, I am who I am. Which might equally mean, I will be who I will be. You see this language ascribed to God in the prophet Isaiah, where God will say things like, I am He. I am the first and the last. And so this indicates to us that God is not merely present at the beginning and the end, but everything in between. He is present at the beginning and in the middle and in the details of our lives and at the end. And the, and the, the scope, the sweep of this title is that he's the sovereign, incomparable Lord of history over against the idols of the empire. He is the all in all. And why does this title matter so much? It matters because it means this God can preserve His people and bring the sweeping cosmic range of this prophecy to fulfillment. Only a God who was and who is and who shall be and who is to come, who is the first and who is the last, only that kind of God can give this kind of book to people like you and me and bring it to fruition. You know, it's interesting, the third term in God's name here, the description, he who is to come. That should be a little surprising. If we were just talking about God's being, we would expect it to say the one who is, the one who was, and the one who shall be. In fact, that's what the hymn Holy, Holy, Holy says. Who wert and art and evermore shall be. That's not what this text says. You get something much more dynamic and interventionist here. You get who is to come. And so that God identifies His very being with your future. With the future of creation, which finds its fulfillment in Him. This is the great I am of the book of Exodus, the one who came down to deliver his people, the God and Father of the, our Lord Jesus Christ who has come. This is that one saying, I shall come with the Son, and I will vindicate you. I will deliver the church. I will restore the creation. And so this who is to come means the future belongs to God. 
He identifies his very being with the future. So the, the church then, we love the past, right? We love history, but we are not nostalgic. The church loves the God who is, but we are not bound by the present time. For we love the one who is to come. And thus the church is, we are forever oriented, turned to the future, to the consummation. We're to be a future-oriented people, a people full of hope because God is the one who is to come. So third here is the Spirit. This may be the first place where the book of Revelation hits us with some symbolism that's initially difficult. Grace and peace are flowing out from the Trinity to you and me. That's what this text affirms. They flow from the Father, but they also flow, verse 5 says, from the seven spirits who are before His throne. And these are not creatures, because grace and peace, in this context, they flow from God Himself. This is a reference to the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit of God, and thus the Holy Spirit. And the background for this is Zechariah 4, which was the Old Testament lesson this morning. And there are seven burning lamps there that represent the Spirit of God. Remember we said last week, John is not going to tell you he's doing this, but at one minute he's drawing from Zechariah, at another minute from Ezekiel, at another minute from Isaiah, at another minute from Exodus, and he's blending all these images together, but he doesn't cite them. Well, this is John drawing from Zechariah 4. The seven burning lamps are the Spirit of God. This identification is sure. In chapter 4, we'll see before the throne of God, there are seven torches of fire. And we are told that they are the seven spirits of God. In chapter 5, we'll see the Lamb of God who has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. In Revelation chapter 3, the risen Christ will say, I am the one who has the seven spirits of God. And so the seven spirits represent the sevenfold fullness, the richness, the infinite depth of the Spirit, which proceeds onto you from the ascended Son. This is the Spirit which burns on the lampstands, which we'll later see represent churches. So what's the point here in the greeting? The point is that this Spirit empowers the witness of the universal church. We are to be filled with this burning, torch Spirit from the throne of the triune God. God pours grace and peace into your life by this Spirit. God enables you, with John, to see the triune God. By this Spirit. Fourth is the Son. Look at verse 5. Jesus is called the faithful witness. An enormously important theme in Revelation. Shortly after this book of Revelation, this witness becomes a technical term, which means martyr. Jesus bore faithful testimony, and that testimony led to his death. And virtually all the witnesses who appear in the book of Revelation are killed. 
And this is a sobering thing. We're told later that the church conquers by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of her testimony, and by not loving her life, even unto death. And Jesus is the forerunner in this. But his witness is not a defeat. Look what the text says. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. He's the risen martyr. And so he's the beginning of a new creation. The resurrection, the final resurrection, the end is near because it has already begun. We say this a lot, but it's very important. Right? Jesus' resurrection means he's the first fruits. And if you're reaping the first fruits from the field, that means you are standing under the harvest time. The, the harvest at the end of the age, the general resurrection at the end of the age, it has already started. Right? The correct answer to, I wonder when the general resurrection of the dead will, will occur is, it is already underway. Jesus is risen. He's the firstborn from the dead, the first fruits, the guarantee of the whole harvest. This, by the way, once you grasp it, changes everything. Everything. Nothing can be seen the same. If the end is out there somewhere and Jesus is going to come out there somewhere, well, you can kind of maneuver around in life. You know, you got something that happened back here. Jesus did something back here. I have a kind of relationship with him vertically now and something later will happen out there. Well, then you can kind of maneuver along the axis of this age like everybody else. But if the end has already begun, then all sorts of things have to be reordered and looked at relatively and differently. And so Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and as such, the text says he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He currently rules over the powers that put him to death. And so this whole statement about the Son is critical in reordering. Remember we said this last week, part of the Part of the function of the book is to get you to think, to reorder your symbolic universe. Jesus bore witness. He was killed, but he is raised. He's raised as the firstborn of many brethren, who though they suffer in Syria, or in Iraq, or in the gulags, or in any number of places in the world today and historically, though they suffer and die as witnesses, they are destined to reign with him. We have two choices. We have two choices. Either this resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead governs the way we look at history, or we are left with a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. The resurrection is not one fact, among other facts, it is the only fact. And every other fact takes its meaning and its bearing from this fact. It is not enough for us to believe this. We must, this is why John uses symbols. This is why John is both a theologian and a poet. This has to be seen and apprehended intuitively and grasped. And the claim that this Jesus, slain by Roman power, is currently now the ruler of the kings on earth. Think of the, the power of this claim. 
What it's doing, it subverts the whole illusion, the whole ideology of Roman statist imperial power. It's like walking into Congress and saying, Jesus is the legislator of legislatures. He's the senator of senators. He's the executive of executives. He's the judge of all judges. It's this very claim which both guarantees that we will be persecuted. It guarantees it. If the claim is made properly, it means you just can't get along. It will guarantee the persecution of the church. And it's this very claim which secures our victory. Jesus, risen, not Caesar, not the state, not the empire, is Lord, King. It's a political claim and a subversive one. And so this whole greeting has been customized by John to the situation of these Asian churches. The sevenfold spirits to empower their witness, but it has to follow the pattern of Jesus' witness. Death, then resurrection, then kingly reign. So John's bracing his readers. He's bracing the church for a severe persecution which is about to break on the world. And at this point in our text, what does John do? He breaks out into a doxology. He breaks out into a song. Doctrine leads to doxology. The idea that doctrine is dry and dusty and doesn't touch down is a bad idea. Doctrine leads to doxology. It leads to the praise of the Son. John's in the middle of this, and he doesn't just keep it describing the Son. He starts to sing. You can see that with the preposition, to him who loves us. To him who loves us. The Trinity leads to singing. This is the assurance that the afflicted, the church about to be engulfed, needs. Jesus Loves me, this I know. For the book of Revelation tells me so. John the seer on that rocky island of Patmos. Right? There's nothing more profound than that little children's song. And I hope you're not embarrassed to sing it if you're an adult. Jesus loves me, this I know. John the prophet seer tells me so. And he sings about it. To him who loves us and has freed us. This is Exodus liberation language. Freed us from our sins by his blood. And so you have this politically oppressed, marginalized, soon to be trampled upon little group of congregations in Asia Minor. And John says to them, you are the freest community of men and women. Because freedom is first and foremost freedom from sin. This liberty is inalienable. It cannot be touched by the empire. And so Jesus has been presented then, first as king, but then as the one who did the work of a priest, who liberated us by his blood. And because he's king and priest, John says, you are kings and priests to serve his God and Father. Currently then, the church, warts and all, reigns with Christ as a kingdom of priests. Appearances to the contrary notwithstanding. And so again, 
This is a call to reorder your symbolic universe. This community, this community, and our brothers and sisters around the world, in all of our weaknesses, we are at the right hand of power. This community is much more important than the Republican debate or the Senate or any other collection of any other bodies anywhere. Now, we all probably nod our head and say, yeah, 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 yeah. But the question is, is your symbolic world reordered this way? So glory, John says, dominion, power belong to this Christ now as the exalted ruler of the kings on earth, but as the end of verse 6 indicates, forever and ever. Right? The glory of Babylon and all the world's Babylons and all the world's beasts, they're going to fall, as have the glory of all other kingdoms and empires. But Christ's glory and dominion are everlasting and eternal. And so the fifth point is the coming. The text says, behold or look. There's a lot of seeing in Revelation. John is trying to get you to see. He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes or peoples of the earth will wail or mourn because of him. And this is one of those places where John does what we said he does. He's blending Daniel chapter 7 and Zechariah chapter 12 together. Daniel 7 speaks of of a son of man who ascends, who comes on the clouds. And this son of man receives universal dominion. And Zechariah 12 speaks of the wailing in the morning of those who pierce the Messiah. And John combines the two images. And so this coming here that's mentioned in our text, while it probably includes other comings of Jesus in history, it surely includes the second coming. We know this because the Son of Man, who John mentions here, appears in Matthew 25 in the parable of the sheep and the goats as the judge of the nations. John takes this text from Zechariah 12 and he does with his literary art what he always does. He expands the text. He universalizes the text. He changes the text from Zechariah to suit his purpose by saying every eye. Zechariah doesn't see that. He says all the tribes of the earth. All the tribes of the earth is a phrase which in the book of Revelation is always universal, always international. In fact, every time it's used in the Old Testament, it means all the tribes of the earth. I say that because some commentators try to restrict this phrase to meaning all the tribes of the land. So Christ has come. He continues to come in history and judge. And he shall come again at the end. And finally, the Lord God Almighty. And here it is God the Father speaking again. You can see that if you compare verse 8 with verse 4. What's the point of this? Reference to the Lord God Almighty at the end of the text. I think it's to tell us this. When Christ comes, He comes. He's the one who is to come. And here He's called the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega, of course, are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. And so this means God is all the letters of the alphabet. 
He's all in all. All speech, all writing, all symbolizing, they flow from this speaking God. And again, the point of this phrase here is not, is not, well, that's a nice title for God. The point is that the Lord is saying, I, and not Rome or any other power, is the Lord of history. As Alpha, God is saying, I am the origin and the creator of all things. As Omega, I am the goal of all things. I will bring the coming fullness of the new creation. Without this, what do we have? We have just a jumble of facts, right? We we disintegrate. We dissolve into an array of noise and jitter. That's what life would be. God is saying, I can gather it all up. I can sweep it all up into my cosmic purposes. There's a centering effect that this kind of a, a term should have on you. A grounding effect. Everything flows from this throne, from this God, who is first and last, Alpha and Omega. So, this is without question, and and we've really only scratched the surface here, but this is without question the richest greeting, the richest theological greeting of any letter in the New Testament. This is an exalted vision of the triune God and the redemption that he's already wrought in Jesus Christ, who is now king. So, We might think, well, that's all well and good, but it doesn't seem very practical. How does this concretely affect our lives? Now, that sort of thinking, I'd suggest, indicates a fundamental problem. We think that something like this, which is a dense passage, really, doctrinal, theological passage. We think that these are not really practical. But that's a grave mistake. Neither John nor any of the other biblical writers share that idea. They do not believe that Trinitarian doctrine is impractical. In fact, just the opposite. For them, high doctrine is highly practical. You will hear me say this a lot in this Revelation series. High doctrine is highly practical. We can't always figure out how. We might not know exactly why. You know, in the fourth century, the church debated for decades, right? Many of you know this, over one letter of one Greek word. Is Jesus homoousion with the Father? Meaning, is Jesus of the same substance of the Father? Or is he homoousios? One, one letter in one long Greek word. Homoousios means Jesus is of a like substance with the Father. Homoousios means Jesus is the same substance of the Father. Now, to the average person on the ground, this is an esoteric theological debate that has no bearing on their lives. I believe Jesus is my Savior. He died on the cross for my sins. Homoiosis, homoiosis. Let the theologians deal with that. Who cares? Well, here's, what, here's, the, here's the thing. If, you, if the church gets this debate wrong, we're all Jehovah's Witnesses. Right? What, what you lose with this debate is a little thing I like to call Western civilization. Europe. 
So the fact that we cannot immediately figure out how it applies to us does not mean it's not really, 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 really important. High doctrine is highly practical. And so this is a vision of the triune God, the God whose being and life are our life and salvation. And so thinking, this is another function John does for us, thinking rightly, thinking honorably, thinking highly, thinking clearly, thinking profoundly about our God is as practical, if not more practical, than any to-do list anywhere. Thinking is Christian activity, and we are either doing it obediently or disobediently. Seeing more clearly the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, should enlighten our minds and move our wills and stir our passions. That's what it does here to John. It stirs him. It moves his tongue to fervent and intelligent praise. Right? John bursts out into a doxology. A potent hymn of praise to Christ. Doctrine detonates doxology. And high doctrine detonates high doxology. This is a good question to ask of doctrinal passages. Can they be sung? And the answer is almost always yes, they can be sung very well. And nothing's more relevant then than reverent worship. So this is part of the benefit of Revelation, right? This is high, clear, fresh mountain air blowing into the cobwebs of our souls. We need to be recentered on this God, this Christ, and this throne. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful, uh, famous, very famous, well-known statement on the ability, on the ability of high theology to move us in a way that other types of literature and speech cannot do. Lewis says this. He says, For my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. Well, that's the, that's the whole experience of my adult life right there. I, I agree with Lewis completely, and tens of thousands of people throughout the history of the church have had this experience. Notice what he says. I find the doctrinal books more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. There's almost nothing thinner than these devotional books that are out there. But I digress. So b- <laughs> back to Lewis's quote. Now back to Lewis's quote. He says, for my part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books, and I rather suspect that the same experience may await others. He continues, I believe that many who find that... Now remember, for those of you who don't know, Lewis is a professor of medieval literature. He knows of what he speaks when it comes to books. He says, I find that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. You may not like the pipe part. I get that. (laughs) But if we have not had the experience of our heart singing unbidden, meaning freely, spontaneously, 
while engaging in high doctrine, then we haven't had happen to us what happens to John in this text. John has his eyes open to see and to peer into the depth of the being of the triune God around his throne, and that makes him sing. Your morning devotional is probably not going to do that for you. So, we have to be renewed. This is what the book's about. Being renewed in the vision and the worship of the glorious triune God. He loves us, the text tells us. He loves us. He's freed us. He's made us kings and priests. He was, he is, and he is to come. Amen.